So, uh, welcome everyone to our first day of Lent. We're moved out of our usual venue uh, because they uh, celebrate it. And so, uh, Nolanda welcomes us here once a year for the Tuesday night. And it happens to be a talk night, so it's a it's a night in which we're going to expound upon a different topic than what we have been speaking about, uh, although it will be within the same theme. And the theme, just to refresh your minds, is the theme of the fundamentals of Dharma. Uh, and the reason I think the fundamentals are so important to keep uh, renewing our acquaintance with is because we forget. We hear them in the first few lectures and then we think we have them and we never actually move into the depths of where they're taking us. We sort of think that they're um, sort of beginning Dharma and that we'd like to get to the deep stuff. Well, the deep stuff is in the beginning Dharma and I hope you've already seen that much of our unskillful habits are created by not listening deeply to the fundamental teachings. And uh, when we started the series, we talked about uh, the uh, temptation for us to deny reality and just uh, keep moving in a direction according to what we want reality to be rather than what's in front of our eyes. And we elaborated on the second theme, uh, which was to really face and encourage a movement into the difficult rather than just the pleasure-seeking direction that many of our lives have taken. And that it takes a reorientation, an ongoing commitment and reorientation to do just that. It's not a one-time thing. You don't hear it once and then uh, figure it's stuck. When, you have a, when we all have a pattern of constantly, almost genetically, moving with the more comfortable situations in life. We have to redirect ourselves back again and again, daily. We have to redirect ourselves back to the uh, commitment and intentionality to see the struggle within our life. Because it's within the understanding of that struggle, which ties us into the knot of me, the knot of self, in which liberation exists. So we begin to understand that we can't bypass that as some secondary excursion that it has to be a primary factor within our training. And then uh, last lecture we talked about uh, bare attention, which many of us have heard since the first beginning series. And bare attention is that willingness to see without opinionation. Uh, the near enemy of bare attention is just that, is judgment. It's uh, facing our observation with attitude, uh, with a certain conviction, with memory. And that obscures and distorts what it is that we see. And so the commitment to seeing uh, with bare attention, bearing our attention, uh, is often, uh, there's some hesitation in moving with that degree of 
of commitment because as we start bearing our attention, our heart starts being revealed directly proportional to the bearing that our attention is given. As, as the heart, as, as the attention becomes more pristine and clear, the less clouded the heart is simultaneous to that. In fact, those are one and the same thing. And so without the protection, the reason, one of the reasons that we keep our attention uh, obscured is that we don't have to face the vulnerability of the heart. We don't have to face the raw tones of the heart, the feelings of being helpless to the pains and sufferings that we're exposed to. And so to stay insulated and protected, we have to stay opinionated is another way of saying what I just said. Now, uh, we're moving on much too quickly because we could continue uh, expounding those three themes for a long, long period of time and they would never be finished. But I'm suggesting these themes for your commitment, for your, intentional, for your intentionality, and if one of them uh, connects with you so that you feel, oh, I just need to spend more time with that one than he's allowing in his series of talks, then do so. Do so. Don't move with the talks if you're still back working with uh, maintaining a direction and alignment to dif the difficult or to denial. So I really expect that from you. Expect your own sense of, of um, propriety in this. What's, what should I be doing and where I should be moving in accordance to your own inward directedness. But tonight we are going to change into a new theme, and that theme is samadhi. Samadhi. Uh, it's a misunderstood topic. It's also perhaps the most indulgent of all the different themes that we'll be talking about because it holds so much of of the pleasure possibilities that we have, uh, have, that we will be interfacing in the course of our practice history. And so unless we have this sense of moving into the difficult, unless we have this sense of not denying what's in front of our eyes, and unless we have the sense of what clear seeing really is and how Samadhi sets that clear seeing up, we could make this a real mess, right? So those are, fundamentals that have been provided for us to be even to approach this topic. So I want to uh, just back up for a second and I just want to um, uh, talk a little bit about a topic that I just mentioned briefly last week uh, outside of the Dharma talk. And that was that uh, clear seeing or just seeing itself is always being uh, obscured by our memory. What happens is that in order to keep seeing uh, sort of three-dimensional, uh, we keep bringing memory into what we see. Memory allows us a great deal of advantage. It allows us certainty to what we're seeing. And the certainty comes from having seen it in the past and having known something about it and having a whole backlog of knowledge about what it is that we're seeing. So the seeing that we talked about 
uh, in the last lecture, the bare scene is often confiscated by memory. And memory uh, provides the, the quality of knowing what function that object form has in front of us in relationship to the life that I am living. So it provides some context for the sense of me. At the same time that memory provides a context for the sense of me, it also provides the sense of me within that context. I arise with the knowledge of what the object is. And so memory, when it's memory interfaces with seeing, you can be sure that you're there in the form of the person whose mem being is, is remembering, the remembering person. And so you aren't going to be able to separate memory from seeing. You don't want to separate memory from seeing. You want to be able to know what it is you're seeing to be able to use it usefully and functionally. So we're not trying to get rid of memory. We're just seeing it as an overlay to what is pristine and untouched, which is the bare attention, the bare seeing itself. Now, it's extremely important to recognize that the way the direction the spiritual journey moves is towards pristine seeing and not remembering. That is, you're not going to, as I mentioned, it's not that memory is suddenly going to be in, uh, in absence. It's just that it's not going to confiscate the total picture of what we see. We can hold it sort of in the background as the background addition if we ever need it, and therefore let it inform what we see, but not direct what we see by giving it a, a front and centered attention. And it's learning, it's learning, Dharma practice is learning to separate memory from seeing. Think of it this way, Dharma is pure seeing. Dharma practice is learning to separate memory from seeing. I just want to let that settle for a while because that's not normally the way we perhaps have understood what meditation was about. <clears throat> Another way of saying all of this, which is equally as relevant as, and important, is that the present is pure consciousness, pure seeing. That's what the present is. The moment, the normally we think of the present as a phase of time that's caught between the past and the future. But the present actually is pure consciousness. And we keep pure consciousness from expressing itself in its unique form by remembering what it is that we see within the present. And therefore, it has a lacing of the past upon the present, which holds the present in the course, in relationship to my own past. And so the present is never given its rightful place of pure and pristine consciousness. It's always tied to what the memory 
of the present is being seen through. Do you see? Okay, I know that's a little bit uh, out there. But unless you get this, you won't understand where I'm going with this lecture. So how is it, how do we, this is Dharma practice, separating memory from pure consciousness, pure attention. How do we do that? How do we separate memory, which is automatic, it seems to me, it's, it's simultaneous with recognition. In fact, recognition is also memory, isn't it? And so every time we perceive something, we also recognize what it is, which hooks us into a whole history and story with that particular object. And how is it that we could ever separate out those two things so that we can learn what pure seeing really is? Well, we start off, and this is where samadhi comes in. Samadhi is the development of mind that allows the, an inroad into that process. Now the beginning students who uh, all of you have been at one time or another, you learned the difference between an experience and your thinking about that experience. Take the breath, you begin to feel the breath as a physical sensation, and then you have immediate thoughts about that physical sensation, sometimes related to that physical sensation, often unrelated and extraneous to it. But nevertheless, the thoughts seem to override that direct experience of the breath, and we spend much less time on the breath than we do thinking about what whatever it is that we're thinking or going wherever the thoughts take us. So there's a training. It's, there's an act of will here that I don't want to discourage. In fact, I want to encourage because it's, it, we need to take ourselves uh, sort of in hand to get this thing working. <clears throat> it's not just oh, you know, it all takes care of itself, it's all pure seeing, it's, everything's the essence. We don't fall back into spiritual aphorisms and expect this practice to work. We have to actually do something in relationship to how it is that our mind is, is presently seeing reality. And that requires a kind of shaking of our shoulders here and say, okay, and it's very, very difficult extraordinarily difficult to start peeling off or peeling away the thinking from the actual contact that we are making. In fact, in the beginning class, which is a series of six classes, if people even get a sense of the difference between what the experience is and thoughts about it, I would say it was a very successful series for that group of people. Most, many people don't. And that comes in the day long, which is after the six weeks, the questions there reveal the fact that most people don't really understand the difference, even after six weeks of practice. Now, what this requires is a focused attention that knows when it's on the breath and when it's thinking. And that is a concentration. That is the ability to focus our attention upon 
an object upon a form. And irrespective of all the words that pass through that form, we're going to hold our attention upon the form, upon whatever that experience is. And so after a long period of time, we can actually see that we have more of the ability to do that. Our attention stays longer on the form. And that's a good thing, obviously, because now we're beginning to see the difference between living life as an experience and all the thinking we do that interrupt and interfere and intercede between that experience and the memory we have forced upon it. Remembering that the memory is contained in the thought we have of the object. We would not know our breath unless we brought the memory of that breath into the object. We wouldn't know it as breath. And so you're beginning to get a sense of having some distance now between, not distance, but some differentiation between the, the experience of life as it's being lived and the memory we have that constantly invests within that experience. We're still a long way away from knowing the difference between those two and abiding in one and being informed by the other. Right? So let's not get too excited about this. These are very small steps that we take. But there is a time, actually, when we move from what I call single-pointed concentration Let's just stay with the terms for a minute. Single-pointed concentration is concentration upon an object. Now, why do we do that? Outside of what I just said, which was to begin to know the difference between when we're on touching life's experience and when we're thinking about it, that's one reason. But there are other important reasons why we need to focus in on the object's the experiences we're having as well. One of them is that over time, after a repetitive uh, series of, of, ex of having the same experience, the same emotion arise, and you're just sitting there being present to it mindfully, you begin to see that it's harmless, that it doesn't hold the fear that we have always given to it, which has been part of our memory of it. So the exposure of life, free of its thought about it, free of its memory associated with it, gives us a renewed relationship with things. We can fill an experience, we can have an emotion, regardless, it can be fear, it can be anger, it can be grief, and suddenly we begin to feel the innocence of that experience itself and realize that it was our memory, it was what we were doing to it, the investment we were giving within it that created the tension we always had with it and the horror and the feared reactivity that we had when it did arise in the past. And so there's an, a renewal of innocence that comes from just the repetition of seeing. But you cannot see unless you can hold your attention on something. So this willingness and ability to sustain our attention upon something 
and gives us the ability to repetitively see it, and that begins to take the edge off of it and allows it to be seen as more as harmless. Very important. Very important. Well, that's not the end. Also, we find that as things become less dramatic to us, the easier relationship we have with it. Now, what's really happening is that you're taking the memory stream from this thing. It's no longer invested with a whole sense of dramatic memory, and therefore the sense of you has become less predominant within that experience as it does arise. You are directly proportional to the reaction you have within something. Stronger reaction, stronger sense of you. Less reaction, less sense of you. And so as this thing is drained of drama, you're drained of your own juices. And that what it feels like from the sense of you that does remain, let's not pretend that we're completely out of the picture, is, oh, this is nice, this is sweet, this is harmonious, this is peace. I feel at peace. I feel at ease with this. There's still the sense of I claiming the experience, but it's not an experience of drama. It's an experience of ease. So often accompanying our ability to sustain our attention repetitively, there is a growing sense of calm and tranquility. And some traditions, including the Tibetan tradition that we are visiting tonight, Samatha practice, these are names I just want you to be familiar with, Samatha practice is really abiding within that calm. It's developing a sense of calm and tranquility within the one-pointed experience that we're having. That's a very important adjunct to meditation. But you can also hear each time we go into these different phases of intimacy with an object, the allurement that that intimacy has to our compulsion to be with the pleasant. We get hooked. It's a new delight. And it takes taking us to a threshold of delightfulness that we've never experienced before. And so we go, whoa, you know, getting drunk was one thing. This is a whole different level of addiction. And so it just keeps bringing us into a quieter and calmer sense that if we understood it, we would realize is what selflessness actually feels like. But we keep claiming the sense of our relationship to this particular object called breath, or whatever it is that we have focused our attention on, and we get attached to the breath rather than to the selflessness that really is the cause and creation of the calm and quiet. You see? It's a very important point. Now we're still on the level of concentration. Concentration is always bringing our attention to bear upon form. You're concentrating on one thing. One-pointed concentration is concentration on the pain in the knee, the emotion that's arising, the sense of the breath rising and falling within the body. It's bringing one-pointed, focused, 
focused attention upon form, the expression and experience of form. And through that, as I mentioned, you get to know that form very well, and you get to know its harmlessness. And until and unless we get to know the harmlessness of each form that we arises from us, we will never settle with ourselves. It's the fact that we are so afraid of some form arising, we give it so much personalization, so much, so much acclaim, so much truth, we've invested so much truth that we never see it. We never allow it to be what it really is with just an experience and the accompanying memory associated with that experience. That's it. That's the, that's the total of it. But we want to keep ourselves in the picture, see? We don't want the clear seeing that would show us that. Because the clear seeing that would show us that takes us to a raw form of me, exposes too much of me, the vulnerability of me, burying my heart of me, and doesn't allow enough protection so that I can sustain my presence of me, the presence of me within that experience. And so we just keep ourselves in reserve as we are experiencing by keep claiming a reference or reaction or something about that experience that we want to continue, that we want to claim reference to. Oh, it's so, I love the breath. Why do you love the breath? Oh, it's the calmest. I go there, I just calm and quiet. That's getting, you see, you're just getting lost. It's just being lost. All of us will get lost, so it's not a problem. The problem is if you stay lost after you hear a lecture about the very thing that you're, <laughs> that's a problem. Because I can remember many times being lost and then the teacher saying something and inside I say, oh, I don't want to hear this. I have to give it up, you know. There was a part of me that wanted to milk it a little more. So you have to be careful of that milking factor. Now, the Buddha said something uh, interesting. Just one thing interesting. <laughs> he once said something interesting. <laughs> he said he taught his teaching could be summarized uh, by the understanding of uh, sila, ethical conduct, panya, wisdom, and samadhi. He said those three things shaped his teaching. And if you understood each of those, then you would understand the entirety of his teaching. So samadhi is not a small thing. We haven't even started touching it yet, but we're getting there. <clears throat> so right now we have established a reference with concentration. Now samadhi and concentration aren't exactly the same, but let me walk you through the way concentration usually goes. It starts with one-pointed concentration and then at some point moves to moment-to-moment -moment concentration. Moment-to-moment -moment concentration is not concentration on the form itself. Like we're on a street corner and every car passes by. This was an example that was the first example I heard back 40 years ago that really made some sense with me about what I was doing, and so I pass that on as my, our lineage. So you stand at the street corner and you watch these cars go by, and one-pointed concentration is knowing what each car is and focusing on it until it's out of view. So there's Cadillac, Buick, 
Toyota, whatever. Moment-to-moment -moment concentration is standing at the street corner holding the gaze steady so that each car is seen but not followed. Okay? So that the concentration holds the space in which the cars pass and does not follow, G, follow each car. Okay? Now we are beginning to move from concentration, which is focused, focused attention on form, to samadhi. Samadhi is, uh, it's not quite there in moment-to-moment -moment concentration because we're making the space, the form that we are focused upon as cars pass. So we're now paying attention to the space and letting the, the material objects within that space pass, right? So we've still made something up. But it's the beginning of of, of beginning to expand the field in depth of our steadiness beyond just the individuation and separation of the form itself. So let me take you to the next step then, what samadhi is. Fed by knowing the harmlessness of each object, fed by, that's wisdom, when you now perceive that an object no longer holds the, uh, the uh, reactivity that you've always invested in it, that it's not in the objects, it was in the memory I had of those objects, then we relax with the objects. We never long have to fold them, we don't have to uh, hold on to them anymore, we, never, we don't have to catch each one. We won't be caught off guard if an emotion happens on us without our vigilance. So we can relax with it. We, we just allow this thing be, to begin to emerge into a, our consciousness. And what happens is that consciousness lightens. It lightens up. It's, it starts getting very uh, firm. Firm doesn't sound light, but in fact it is. It's, if you think, uh, let's see how to, if I can come up with an analogy here. I can't at the moment, so have to, I'll try to keep talking until I do. <laughs> but samadhi is stability of mind itself. It's no longer, uh, long since has it been uh, interrupted by each passing thought. It's more the field of awareness now, and it's within the consciousness itself that has steadied itself. It's no longer focused on the space in which objects are moved. The consciousness itself is now steady. And samadhi isn't just one attribute, it has several. It has a component of concentration in that it is steady. It has a component of wisdom. Now, remember what the Buddha said. He says, if you understand ethical conduct, wisdom, and samadhi, you will essentially understand the entire teaching. And what we're beginning to see is that within samadhi is the entire teaching. In the sense that 
There is wisdom within samadhi. It already knows that it doesn't have to withdraw or react or contract to every experience that's arising. It's learned that experiences are safe. And so that sense of relaxation is inherent within the arising of those experiences. It has an attribute of integrity to it because if there's no samadhi if there is paranoia. If you are concerned that you're going to be caught in the lie that you just told, your consciousness is not going to be steady. And so part of the quality of a steady consciousness is a reliable and honest life. One that just does what it says it's doing. It also has the ability of being uh, rooted in itself. In the sense, and this is also an attribute of wisdom, is that it just it just is steady in confidence. It's not uh, a ego, an egoistic con con uh, confidence. It's simply in place. It's simply in place. And this is what I look for, actually, uh, in a mature meditator. Is a consciousness that's in place. That you can feel the the flinching of a consciousness that's out of place, that is lost within its own neurosis, within its own worry, within its own problematic. Problems are not driven by external events. Problems are driven by memory of internal events. And as we get a bearing on that, as we get a sense of that, there is no disturbance that is going to create a fleeing from life. And so there's a sense of rootedness that comes from the willingness not to flee. And as long as we have paralleled or coupled that with the understanding of moving into the difficult, you see how these things work on? These are layered cakes. If we're missing that layer, you're missing samadhi. Okay, so it's difficult. I'm staying. I, I say that egoically, I'm staying, but the consciousness just is settled on itself. It doesn't, it's not looking to move. It's not looking for justification. To, it's not looking for compromise in this. Right? And then also you, you see how the first talk on denial is also a coupled part of that. That if you're denying any aspect of your experience, that's going to come back to haunt you because denial contains the fear element. And as soon as that experience shows itself, which it will, has to, when we're afraid of something, it will reveal itself. That is not a confidence. That's not a oneness of mind, a mental harmony, which is the nature of samadhi. Now, before I make samadhi a golden, you know, heaven, let me break it apart. It has no ethics. It has the ethics of non-paranoia. It does not have the, it still is covered or laced with a sense of self. It still has the sense of my samadhi. And it's not aware of the motivation of what it is doing and therefore can be either skillful or unskillfully used. And if you've ever noticed somebody who just happens to have a very steady attention 
and there can be you can there's a wide range of that occurring they aren't necessarily using it skillfully they can use it manipulatively as well and there's nothing that is as remarkable as somebody who has a very steady attention because they're quiet inside and you feel kind of unbuttoned and loose and totally seen within that steady attention and that is a very powerful place a very power, powerful operative operation that can be tremendously unskillful if used manipulatively and you, I can t feel it just like that I have no time for that you see it has to be based in love now that's where awareness comes in. The samadhi does not have access to love. The filter of sense of self is still there. So the best analogy I can give it is if you have a, a house of brick, not straw, most of our samadhi levels when we're beginning are of straw, or whatever the second pig was, straw and whatever it was, what was it? Paper? sticks <laughs> this is a house of brick okay that is it's steady it's not uh, brick is the gives the wrong feeling of of invince um, of um, inflexibility smarty is very accommodating but I'm just trying to give a sense, but the space that's held within that structure of samadhi is the awareness. Now awareness is not conditioned. But the brick structure is conditioned. Sometimes you'll have samadhi and sometimes you won't. But that space, whether you have it or not, is not going anywhere. The unconditioned quality of awareness is always there. The Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta, <laughs> notice when your mind is on the breath and notice when your mind is not on the breath. That which holds both on the breath and off the breath is awareness. That which sees each thing as it arises is samadhi but that which knows when even when that is not there that stability of attention is not there still has the same quality of discernment oh that samadhi's not there now my mind isn't stable still that's the awareness that's where we're moving on this thing. that's the seeing that's the seeing. This, what we're doing is just providing a skillful tool in which to see. It's much easier to see when your mind is steady, is it not? Then like this. You, most of us, don't know when our mind is off the breath because we're lost in the thought, right? And no longer have any kind of sense or space to that thought at all. <clears throat> so having a steady mind where we can see when the mind when the thought arises and see the dissipation of the thought is very helpful because it eventually leads us to the awareness that knows both. It's the awareness that knows both 
that is the essence of the freedom. The samadhi is a tool that gets us there. That is forgotten in many of the lore in this tradition and others. It becomes something we chase in and of itself. People get addicted to the samadhi qualities because it contains equanimity, it contains smoothness of attention, it contains non-reactivity, all qualities of wisdom, and you, you're like on top, and it's also a very powerful position to have. But it is not freedom. And therefore it's limited. And therefore it is unreliable in essence. But people who get on samadhi retreats get very disenchanted with form because Samadhi has the power, as concentration does, to move the magnification and the power of mind to a very subtle noticing, to the quantum level of noticing, where you just see things coming and it's all like that. And you'll hear long-term meditators talk about the quantum level of observation, the, mo the fracturing of life, the earthquake quality of life, where everything is just ephemerally be perceived. And they then think, oh, they say, this must be what life really is. Or at least these must be the fundamental truths of what the normal perception is based upon. And then they come off retreat and that sense of samadhi begins to wane because it's conditional. It, it requires a spec special provision the concentration requires a special protective environment in order to sustain itself. Anything that needs an environment to sustain itself is provisional, is conditional. And so that sense of disenchantment also starts to wane. And it's not quite as alluring as it was when we were on retreat, when we saw things that were really very ephemeral, and therefore we became disenchanted with them. That is why you ha we have to come out at this level of perception and not stay within some, or some sort of subtle, protected influence. And we have to see the level of perception that we're in. And the mistake that's made is that when you're in samadhi, you also have a subtle sense of yourself within that samadhi, and that's the form of you that's disenchanted with the forms of the world. But you exist only because the forms of the world exist. You can be disenchanted and you can be a disenchanted you. You can be an enchanted you if you love what you see. So when you come off of the retreat and you're not going to, you're not going to give up form, you're not going to divest in form, it's going to come back into the gross manifestation it was prior to being on retreat. So then you're back right there with it as the gross form of whoever you were prior to the retreat. And therefore your sense of you is directly observable to how it is and what it is and the way it is that you see the world outside of you. That's not freedom. To take this level of perception, 
the ordinary level of perception and start working with how the sense of self forms in relationship to this level of perception and then begin to perceive how investing in form at this level of perception is itself disenchanting. Untrusting. It's just, it just isn't worth it because it's coming from me. It's not in you. Whatever I ascribe to you is in me. I'm giving that to you. It's also true about what, how I describe myself. It's not true as in, intrinsically of me. It's what I invest in my image that gives me that sense of me. It's what I invest in your image that I give the, the essence of you. And when I see that, I withdraw. I withdraw my investment in myself and I withdraw my investment in the world. And that divesting allows awareness to come in. We cannot do this thing by just divesting in forms of the world because the form of the self is still in control and control the operating system of the samadhi factor. We have to do this through wisdom, through awareness, through seeing, through understanding, through welcoming the heart instead of the control, of welcoming the view of connectedness which comes in under true in true wisdom not the sense of power that comes through the manufacturing of conditions and so samadhi is a fundamental and as you can see, it takes you all the way if you want to look at it. But we just start liking it so much because it's giving us a new world view and it, like we're on an alien planet. Oh my God, I've got to get back to this. To this what? Do you think subtler expressions of form take you to the formless? <coughs> Subtler expressions of form take you to subtler expressions of form. The microscopic view is still an expression of form. That's not the formless. The formless only arise when there's divestment from all forms, gross or subtle. And it is there that that passageway, that door, is only accessible through wisdom. So I leave us there tonight. Can I, can we sit for a minute or two? <coughs> Don't worry if you didn't understand it, all of it. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I want you just to get the drift, the movement of this thing. I want wherever you're frozen to move, move you forward, okay? Some of you are rightfully struggling with the breath because there is a time when will and energetic effort is necessary. 
Just let yourself be informed what it no longer is. Not through me, but through your own feedback system. Are we looking for freedom or are we looking for power? I will always keep that question foremost in our mind. And I don't care how difficult the psyche may manifest. Are you willing to face it with courage? That's the question I hold. Because it's not going away. That expression of form needs to be seen until it becomes a friendly, non-dramatic display. And I expect that from a mature meditator. Okay. So we have quite a few announcements that we'll get to in just a few minutes, but if we have a few minutes, if you have any questions or comments that you would like to bring forth. Yes. Yes. The only hand in the room. I think, I think, I think, she said, uh, the question is, uh, she'd like to, she just, this phrase came into her mind and she wants to know if it has anything to do with what I was saying, and that's Christ saying, the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, it, it depends on what we mean by meek. I, I think what that means is that the heart shall inherit the earth, that, that the, the sense of vulnerability, of exposure, of innocence, right? And that has a lot to do with what I'm saying because that's intrinsic to awareness itself. Intrinsic to what? The more we bear our spirit, the more we bear our, the bearing of our heart, the bearing of our attention, which is what I mentioned in the last talk, allow, is not a, um, it's not a power move. It's a movement of of humanity. It's basic and raw humanity exposing itself. And uh, I think that may be what Christ meant by the meek. Right? And if that's the case, it, they shall inherit the earth because they, that will, they will then be as a, the connected representative of our humanity. Right? So in that sense, they will inherit the earth. Everybody else will gather the earth together, exploit the earth but they will inherit the earth. They will become the earth. Yes? So I'm wondering, um, you were describing a retreat atmosphere where you're exploring samadhi uh, with a great deal of concentration. And it seems like a lot can arise in that that could be confusing. And I'm wondering if there's an age where, let's say you're in your 
question is, is there an age in which uh, the intensity of a retreat can actually work against you? I don't think it's age so much as, the, as a stability of consciousness. There are, at all ages, times when an eruption of past memory, especially if it has been uh, a rather dramatic memory of, say, abuse, that sort of thing, and we may not even realize that that was there, can erupt uh, as we relax uh, the edges of our, uh, of our relationship, as we relax our protection, as we simply relax psychically, there can be an eruption of sometimes very difficult uh, memories. Uh, this is when uh, it's very important that the teacher recognize that and get the person uh, grounded again and moved. Sometimes that eruption doesn't occur until after, sometimes after the retreat itself, because it's as if you've opened something that just keeps pouring out. Well, uh, it's a very important question. Again, it depends upon the maturity. Most people are able to do that on their own just through the circumstances of life and some stability and getting back into the normalcy of a vision. A vision. Other people have to have some support. Sometimes um, good therapeutic support can be very helpful in working with the charged areas that are arising to normalize and such that they can go out and, and, and uh, continue to work with those uh, uh, experiences as they're arising, but not have them flood the flood the system, all right? So the usual and normal, and I don't want people to get frightened. Oh, I don't want to do a long retreat because uh, you know I might be flooded. It's relatively rare for that flooding to occur, so that it overwhelms you. It's not uh, uncommon for for a lot of emotions to be stirred up after a long retreat. And a lot of, of, you know, and that's why when I know one of you is going off to retreat, I make an appointment with you right afterwards. And I just, I want to check in. I want to see what's going on with you. And I want to monitor how you're doing over time as you come off that retreat. Uh, and I feel that that's, uh, that it's important part of my job to follow you through in your daily life to do that. Well, sometimes it does get hard. And my job is to normalize that for you and see that you do have the ability to work with it, regardless of whether you're seeing it at the level that you saw it on the retreat. You're still, it still could be coming up, and you could be interpreting it as uh, self-defeating. And that's I want to uh, support the consciousness in being able to work with it in a useful and help, healthy way. Yes? Single-pointed, uh-huh. And then moving to something. Right. You, many times before, you talked about choice, moving from choiceless, choiceless right. Yes. Yes. Uh, the question is about single-pointed concentration to moment-to-moment concentration to choiceless awareness. Uh, choiceless awareness is much more of the moment-to-moment concentration that I was talking about, where the mind is simply abiding in awareness as things are being seen. Uh, it's not moving with each thing that is being seen, so the awareness has a 
a samadhi factor within it, a stability factor, a uh, mental harmony. Uh, but each thing that is going through the sky, so to speak, is perceived. And uh, that's, it's a beautiful at-easement with life to see it that way. And one in which that's not that far from any of your um, practices. Uh, with the right encouragement, with the right uh, intentionality, which is very important to all of this, and the right interest that you have in, in moving it forward in that way, you'll find that, uh, that uh, this is not, uh, not such a, a deep and profound experience to have this choiceless awareness. Okay, so we have to stop for this evening. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.